Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In 1835, a young French author on the verge of publishing his first book wrote, The best thing that can happen to me is if no one read my book, and I have not yet lost hope this happiness will be mine. But Alexis de Tocqueville's hopes were not fulfilled. Although the first printing was just 500 copies, he almost immediately became an intellectual celebrity. When he heard people speaking about his book, said Tocqueville, he wondered whether they are really talking about me. In his new biography, The Man Who Understood Democracy, A Life of Alexis de Tocqueville, Olivier Zunz argues that his subject was a passionate advocate for democracy, judging it the only system that could provide both liberty and equality. Tocqueville did this both as a scholar and a politician, dying at a moment when it seemed that in both France and America, the experiment to which he had devoted his life was on the point of failure. Olivier Zanz is the James Madison Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Virginia. He is the author, most recently, of Philanthropy in America, A History. He has edited the Library of American Edition of Democracy in America, as well as Tocqueville's Recollections, Alexis de Tocqueville and Gustave de Bonbon in America, and The Tocqueville Reader. Olivier Zanz... Thank you for being on Historically Thinking. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, we are, and I should say, this is the beautiful thing about being uh, having someone who's uh, also lives in Charlottesville, and it's post we're in move from pandemic to endemic. I'm in one of the a study that one covets after seeing it. Mm-hmm. But uh, so in this beautiful space, we're going to talk about the um, the mysteries of Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, do you find him mysterious? I find him um, secretive, (laughs) trying very hard to um, render the complexity of his thinking in clear prose, um, thinking that his real true vocation was to be a politician, not a writer, but trying to be both and to inform one part of his life with the other, having a very complex heritage, coming in from an aristocratic family with many members, many of the family members were decimated during the French Revolutionary Terror in 1794. Tauville was born in the aftermath of the French Revolution in 1805. He was the only one in his family who realized that democracy was the way of the future and he was going to try to understand it. But I I think that you're very, very clear 
that my thought about de Tocqueville prior to reading this book last week, I probably thought de Tocqueville was an aristocrat who realized democracy was the thing of the future and therefore would make his peace with it and make it as good as he could. But that's not what you're saying. He is not fundamentally aristocrat. He is, for you, fundamentally a democrat who happens to have been born an aristocrat. Tocqueville described this, his situation best. He says he was an aristocrat by instinct and a democrat by reason. Mm -hmm. So, yes, he has aristocratic tendencies. He was an elitist. Um, he liked to be in the company of people in the know. Um, he, but he, but but he felt for a long time. I mean, he tried very. He he realized that the world had changed for good, and then and then he realized that a society that benefits the many is better than a society that privileges uh, a few beautiful achievements by the privileged. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he had no clear sense of what this society would be like. He feared um, the um, radicalism of the French left post-revolutionary era. He feared the tendency for totalitarian regimes, whether they came from the right or the left. And he went to America pretty blind to begin with, but to sort of figure out what a democracy looked like on the ground. So let's go back to even before his conception. As you said, it is no... He's born, he was born in 1805, but he's a very, his existence is almost happen, a happenstance. It almost is occurs by chance. So much of his family had um, been executed. And then his parents are saved by Robespierre's assassination. Four. Four. That is to say, his, his uh, great-grandfather, who the great Malheur, who had defended the protected the philosopher in the 18th century, uh, had served as the king's lawyer at the king's trial mm -hmm. in 1793. Uh, the, the, uh, um, uh, his great-grandfather, his grandparents, um, an aunt and an uncle, um, and another aunt were all guillotine. Uh, and his parents were in jail, waiting to be taken to the scaffold mm -hmm. and have their heads chopped off. And the day before they were scheduled to be, to, to be killed, uh, the Robespierre regime fell. Robespierre was arrested and himself sent to the scaffold. They opened up the jails. Actually, the Douglas parents remained in jail for another four months. Hmm. But it's a, it's a it's a miracle somehow <laughs> that uh, uh, they survived. 
Yeah. So already we see he has his entire life. He has a, 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 an idea of, of certain events and, and chance and fate in history. This is something that he's interested in. Uh, but the entire family remained loyal to the deposed monarchy mm -hmm. uh, and never even warmed up to constitu constitutional monarchy. Right. They remained loyal to the absolute monarchy of the uh, Bourbon family. And, uh, but somehow, by the time, by 1830, Tocqueville, Alexis, is going his own way. Well, I think he went his own way all throughout childhood. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, uh, he lived for a while only with his father, who was a prefect, in other words, was a, a civil servant uh, representing the central government in the region. Mm -hmm. And uh, he lived in Metz in eastern France. His mother had stayed in Paris and he lived there in his teenage years with his father. Uh, those were critical years where he was growing up. Uh, he. He, he had a major crisis of faith reading the philosophy in his father's library. He was at the same time a brilliant student and yet a quite uh, undisciplined. Um, uh, he had a very difficult time uh, deciding what he would do in life. Mm -hmm. Ended up somewhat under the weight of tradition and family advice to go into a legal career. Uh, and, uh, but by and large, yes, he had this, this uh, epiphany, uh, this, made this decision to go to America in 1835. Now, this was prompted by specific political events. Mm -hmm. Before we get to that, I was wondering... Um, do you think that this crisis of faith is extremely important uh, and it echoes down his entire life until the last day of his life? Do you think that that crisis of faith also applied to, wasn't just a crisis of faith about Christianity, Catholicism, but also about even the family's monarchical faith? Do you think that was also involved in his crisis of faith? Well, I untitled the first chapter of the book, Learning to Doubt. Mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, that is very much uh, part of Tocqueville's makeup. He was, he was a systematic questioner. Mm -hmm. um, and, but he suffered from it. He said that uncertainty and doubt was, was a curse. He always searched for some kind of absolute truth but was unable to find it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think... Um, Somehow, you know, we all live with our anxieties. Uh, it's a little bit of a miracle that Tocqueville learned how to turn his anxieties and his doubt into <laughs> some kind of creative outlet, <laughs> uh, productive, uh, productive life, creative life, and yeah. productive life, even though it was a constant struggle. Yeah. Um, his time in Versailles seems to be extraordinarily important. He meets his best friend or second best friend, whatever, uh, Gustave de Beaumont, he meets his future wife. Uh, and 
he learns a lot of other things that are important to him, either to react against or to use. Uh, could you describe this m sort of moment in his life? Well, after law school, uh, during the uh, uh, restoration years, that is the year where after the Napoleonic, the fall of the Napoleonic Empire, uh, absolute monarchy was restored in France. Uh, uh, the curriculum in law schools was uh, very limited to uh, basic rules of law. There was really no speculation, no sense that a lawyer should have a broader vision of uh, the political economy. Uh, his father um, uh, found photography on a job as an apprentice prosecutor. Uh, in the Versailles courthouse. Uh, so he was a lawman of the Totem Pole. Uh, his job was basically to prepare files for the real prosecutor. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he, uh, but he did work on some uh, major cases, uh, including um, uh, uh, French nobles who had been exiled during the terror and the revolution and were returning uh, to France and only to realize that the state had confiscated their lands and their uh, property and houses. So he worked on those and he worked on other uh, important cases. So he sharpened his mind. But on the whole, I would say no. The, his, his youth at Versailles convinced him that he didn't really want to go on forever. No, right. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting how um, you uh, note at several points in America, he's uh, writing to his father asking how certain things in France work that you would think that he might have learned, um, but he just doesn't know how the administrative, the French administrative state, he didn't learn how the French administrative state worked in his time in law school or time as an assistant prosecutor? Well, he learned some, but the father was a very intelligent, well-connected, mm -hmm. powerful civil servant, and, and, and they had a very close relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think it was kind of a natural mm -hmm. uh, at times uh, to ask his dad for a refresher. Mm -hmm. What happened is that when he landed in America, things looked so different. He was Tocqueville was always thinking comparatively, mm -hmm. so he really wanted to be able to to have some anchor in in uh, uh, in in French things uh, and be sure, um, uh, especially about points of administrative law, as there was no real separation of powers in in France. In France. Um, one thing one thing that comes across about what comes across just. I think I've always realized this about the Tocqueville is that he has a lovely capacity for friendship. Um, he makes friends, and he and he usually keeps keeps them as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, he he has uh, he values friends and values friendships, and he he maintains those friendships, which is not so easy to do. No. Uh, uh, letter writing is a big part of his life. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, there are. Uh, 32 volumes of Tocqueville's works in the collection of complete works. We only know him for his main books, 
Democracy in America, two volumes, 1835, uh, uh, 1840, the second volume. We, we, we know uh, him very well for the major book he published at the end of his short life, because he died at 53, um, uh, The uh, Old Regime and the French Revolution. Uh, we've known him too for, for his uh, uh, recollections of the 1848 revolution that were published only posthumously. Uh, but we have uh, um, in the complete works, about 20 volumes out of the 32 that are mostly correspondence. Mm -hmm. um, and also um, his life as a politician, so speeches, draft speeches, and so on and so forth. Uh, this is a boon to the biographer. I mean, I could follow his life very closely in reading this vast source of information. But his letters are delightful. I mean, because we don't think of him as a wit. If you read Democracy in America, you don't realize the profound wit that he has. And he has the ability, the great ability, of writing these seemingly conversational letters that are very carefully styled, um, if, if that makes sense. Yes, yes, he's a great letter writer. Yeah. It's absolutely. Those are a real pleasure to read. Some of his important uh, correspondence. Uh, the correspondence with John Stuart Mill yeah. is a case in point, you know, another great liberal thinker of the 19th century. Uh, they were friends and, uh, uh, and communicated, not always shared the same viewpoints, but very important correspondence. There are some others, uh, perhaps with lesser known figures, but yes, the, his correspondence is critical. And you can see why he was then popular with the, with, in the Salon. Because if his, his uh, you say his, he was always diff he always found public speaking difficult, sort of like Jefferson actually, because and, uh, with his uh, weak chest and, and and breathy voice and all the rest of this, but but that he his conversation if his conversation was anything like his letters, it must have been really superb. The conversation was superb. Um, the public speaking was not, uh, as you pointed out, he. He had a pulmonary disease all his life, so he, his voice didn't carry. And, and in the 19th century, there was no amplification. So when you spoke in the chamber and you wanted to be heard by several hundred people, you really had to speak loudly and clearly and be an orator. And that he was not. Yeah. And he was diffident. He was somewhat, uh, he was very warm with a close, close circle but difficult to approach otherwise. And reading the, uh, the recollections, you can see that he has the bad public speaker's suspicion of the good, <laughs> the good public speaker. It, it's uh, very much like Jefferson talking about Patrick Henry. <laughs> you know? um, but he and Beaumont decide to go to the United States. Why? Well, okay. I mean, there's a lot, so many reasons, actually, it turns out. Well, uh, the... The return of the absolute monarchy uh, in 1815, after the collapse of the Napoleonic Empire, after Waterloo, uh, uh, the didn't, didn't, didn't end well. Uh, the, uh, uh, Charles X, uh, the king, uh, was an authoritarian figure. Uh, um, uh, 
and and published uh, uh, ordinances that suppressed uh, f uh, freedom of the press, uh, diminished uh, the electorate by a half, uh, um, and there was a, a revolution in the in eighteen thirty uh, that uh, in July of eighteen thirty uh, where the king had to flee in exile and and he was replaced by a cousin uh, the Duke of Orleans who uh, uh, who instituted a constitutional monarchy not exactly on the British model but inspired by the British constitutional history um, Tocqueville had, was not a Democrat yet. Uh, he was pretty much a member of the Tocqueville family, loyal to the Bourbon family, to the to the to the to the king that had been deposed. Still, he swore the oath of loyalty to the new regime. His father advised him to do so, to sort of not to sort of see what would happen. But he didn't want to stay around as a, since he was a bad public speaker. He hadn't been promoted to be a, a prosecutor himself. So he was still in the ranks. Uh, he didn't think he had a future in France. Uh, his career didn't look good. People much less intelligent than him had been promoted ahead of him. That hurt him. And... Uh, and and uh, he was not feeling good about having sworn this source of royalty when everybody else in the family had refused to do so. His best friend, uh, childhood friend, uh, Louis de Kergorlet, uh, resigned from the army so that he wouldn't serve under the new regime. Uh, so Tocqueville was looking for a way out. Uh, prison reform was in the air. There had been a number of investigation of how to uh, reform the French prison system. There was a sense that uh, there were some significant uh, innovations in uh, American penitentiaries um, at Sing Sing in New York State, at Auburn in New York State, in Philadelphia, Eastern State. And he and Beaumont, who was a colleague in the courthouse, decided, hey, maybe we could just go away and look at this reform and offer our services to the Minister of Justice and write a report on what's going on in America for prison reform. And I'd say they wrote the best grant proposal you can write. Uh, they, <laughs> they really made a, a case uh, for this. And they were well connected and, and they got this unpaid assignment. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll give you a leave of absence from the courthouse so you don't lose your job. Was not much of a job for Tocqueville, but still he could return. Bomo was higher up in the hierarchy. So go over there and write us our report. Write a report. Tocqueville always said from the very beginning to his friend, this was a pretext. But it was a good pretext. And what he really wanted to see is, okay, we, we have constitutional monarchy at home now, but 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 it, it's going to change and evolve. Eventually, it's going to be democracy. So there's only one democracy in the world, 
that claims to be one country that claims to be a democracy. So let's see what's going on over there. Mm -hmm. He spoke very well English. Um, he had uh, modest knowledge of American history. Basically, he learned most of it on during the sea voyage. Uh, and and that's it. But there was a family connection, as it were, to uh, Chateaubriand, right? Uh, there was a family connection to Chateaubriand. Chateaubriand was in exile in, in America uh, during the French Revolution and wrote some great uh, uh, American quote-unquote novels. Mm -hmm. But those novels gave Tocqueville the idea <laughs> of the noble savage mm -hmm. just, in the, just following the tradition of Rousseau. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Chateaubriand was a great literary figure. Uh, the family connection was that Tocqueville's guillotine uncle, that is married to his mother's sister, was Chateaubriand's brother. Ah, okay. okay. So it was not, it's also kind of an indirect uncle, but, but uh, uh, his, his Chateaubriand cousins, um, his parents adopted the Chateaubriand cousins after, after the Chateaubriand mm -hmm. couple had been had been guillotined, mm -hmm. and so they were raised together. Uh, and Chateaubriand, the great writer, was often visiting his nephews and visiting the family. Mm -hmm. Remember Stockville's in childhood. Now, there had been a, um, I don't know how successful, but there had been a number of French travelers and travelers' accounts of America going back to the Revolution. Uh, but this is, as I would understand, this is a relative, is this a... a this is a moment where French interest in the United States is at a lower ebb. I mean, this is not this is not something that people are people are not clamoring for accounts of the United States. And, and the no, the, the the heyday uh, where uh, in the period prior to the French Revolution, mm -hmm. and there were a number of people, uh, key people who who traveled um, to reflect on. The, the American Constitution, the American system. Uh, uh, Brissot was the head of the Girondin mm. section in the, in the French Revolution, was one of them, maybe the most famous one of them. There were other accounts of America in the late 18th century. Then there is uh, the, the emigres the, during the French Revolution, Chateaubriand being one of them. But yes, it was not nearly as... Tocqueville uh, 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 didn't really fit into that tradition. Mm -hmm. no. No, and we'll, we'll talk about that. It's, it's interesting. I think that um, even well-educated uh, Americans sometimes imagine him as a travel writer, um, which he is not, um, and we, we'll talk about that in, 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 in time. But he is, um, so he's coming to see a democracy. Um, and he's, he's also, he's very proud of being Norman, He's very proud that one of his ancestors was part of William the Conqueror invasion, but his he's not one of these bilingual um, sort of Norman French English speaking Normans. He's they've they've been away from no, Normandy. He, he, no, he 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 was not. Uh, he had read quite a bit of British history um, on his own, but he was not fluent in English, as I told you. Far from it. Yes. Um, and uh, 
he actually, which is in a sense quite important in understanding democracy in America, he went to America first and to England second. <laughs> and I think that's critical because he went to America with a completely open mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, coming in from France and comparing it with France, but not, n- not looking for the uh, British aristocratic sources of 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 liberty in the American constitution. It's very interesting when he eventually gets to England, he's looking at England through an American lens. Right. That's so. That's actually <laughs> a very significant. But I want to go back to what you said about Tocqueville not being a a uh, not having a travel narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, of course, Tocqueville uh, his best method of learning was mostly dialogue with informants, mm-hmm. uh, taking extensive notes from conversation, uh, observations on the, uh, on the ground. Mm-hmm. He's really kind of a born anthropologist in some mm-hmm. ways. Yes. Um, and his readings um, are mostly about perfecting his style as a writer rather than developing his ideas. Mm-hmm. So... So one of the perfectly uh, legitimate reading, in a way, but still misguided uh, reading of democracy in the market, even though it's legitimate, is how you know because Tocqueville was so smart, he he made so many keen observations about America that one always wonders how he managed to see this point and that point and that point, and indeed. He he came here with practically no knowledge, and he spent nine and a half months in 1831-32. In 1835, he published a book that was that has helped Americans to think of themselves anew. Mm-hmm. So 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 there's an absolute brilliance there, but the brilliance doesn't come so much from observations as it comes from his the fact that he was animated by an existential question. And I think I should go with that a little bit. Please. Okay. So, all the little biographical details that we began our conversation with mm-hmm. are very significant. Tocqueville was an aristocrat from an aristocrat family. And if you were an aristocrat in 1830, you'd and the family had been decimated by the revolution. There were a constitutional monarchy that was uh, 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 just in, uh, uh, put, put in place. Uh, the aristocrats had, had, the nobility had lost its privilege at birth. Equality in Tocqueville's family and circle of friends was a bad word. And and sorry, equality was leveling, was putting everybody at the same level, which means for them they were going down. Mm-hmm. They were going down. They were losing their special privileges. They were, now their special privileges in the France of the old regime, Germany, elsewhere in England, nobility could justify privileges by going to war, by administering regions. Uh, by being responsible for the welfare, noblesse oblige, so to speak. Uh, but that was no longer the case. So, so those 
privileges were frivolous. This is why there was a French Revolution to begin with. At least it's one of the big reasons for it. Nonetheless, uh, Tocqueville's family, still loyal to the Bourbon kings, felt equality was a bad word. This is a way to go down. People who were in the know were no longer in charge. Uh, people were electing to office uh, second raiders and so on and so forth. What Tocqueville discovered in America, and what Tocqueville realized in America, what Tocqueville saw for himself in America, which came as a surprise, is that equality could generate liberty. <laughs> it was not aristocratic liberty, but it was a kind of positive liberty where people could achieve their potential uh, on their own. They were no longer stuck with a hierarchy. Uh, the hierarchical chain was broken. The links were severed. And everybody could then, individually, everybody was white. Everybody was white. Tocqueville's thinking about African-Americans and uh, about uh, Native Americans was critical uh, and he devoted a large part of democracy in America to them. But for, for the... So it's not just like they are the elephant in the room, they are a big part of the issue and he understands that. But, for the, but he saw that for the white population equality could generate a kind of liberty that didn't exist, mm -hmm. didn't know that could work out that way. So, so he began to frame modern history as a constant struggle to um, balance equality and liberty, to make sure there was enough equality to provide people's with liberty, but also ways to restrain liberty so that we can keep it going. Mm -hmm. Which is why uh, much of democracy in America is about not just liberty, but the habit of liberty. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain uh, uh, the possibility of self-government, the ability to achieve uh, how do you transmit this culture from one generation to another? So this equality comes to him like a divine revelation. It, it, it strikes him right over, right over the head. Yes and no. <laughs> it, it strikes him right over the head. And it describes it as, yes, the work of providence. Mm, yeah. But he has a sense of how to make a case for him, for advertising his, <laughs> his book. He felt, okay, I need to, to really drive the point home. So he and his childhood friend, Kevin talk about this. How do I introduce the book? Yes, this is the will of God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's another thing? This is the big, the big thing. But what's another thing that also hits him over the head? Well, I, I think um, 
uh, your question here is a little too general. What okay. do you have in mind? I'm thinking of associations. Okay. The role of associations. Yeah. I mean, there are certain, there are moments in the, in, as you describe it, where he sees things like equality. He sees things like associations. Obviously, the hearing about town meetings is revelatory to him. Okay. So, uh, uh, he, he, he um, produces uh, this, this theory of civil society, which is why he's perhaps best known. Mm -hmm. um, and it's extremely significant because of, of the novelty of the concept of association, as he, as he phrases it. Recall that George Washington, uh, James Madison, we're only talking about factions. And Washington feared factions because he felt they were impeding the work of government. Madison turned the problem around and said, well, if you have so many factions, after all, they'll cancel each other out. So it's a way to keep people talking and thinking mm -hmm. and arguing among themselves. So he became in favor of them. But the idea of uh, voluntary associations of people basically not relying on the state, but relying on uh, their, on putting together their common resources. Um, so we really uh, put this together for this book. Now, what is really very significant here is that if you read not just Democracy in America, but all of his travel notes, which of course I have, I even published them, uh, there are very few observations on, on the life of associations in America. Um, he has, when he goes to Boston, uh, very important conversations with a Unitarian minister who then would become the first president of Harvard, mm -hmm. Jared Sparks, mm -hmm. who is also a historian. A uh, very important figure in Turnville's life, one of the most important American informants, who really gives him a crash course on the New England town uh, and, and the local government and all of that. Um, and Turnville is very attentive. Not only Giles uh, Sparks gives him uh, detailed uh, information, but he writes. Uh, a long 50-page memorandum just for Tocqueville about this that is sent, sent to him. Uh, uh, so uh, the same Giles Sparks always tells him, well, you know, two things. One, with this description of the New England town, you have to understand that to understand this country, this is where you have to start. Because the town uh, preceded the the the, uh, the the state and the state preceded the federal government. So, so this country was built from the ground up. Mm -hmm. There was no centralization at the beginning, and then spreading. Mm -hmm. So Sparks certainly insists on this, and Tocqueville absorbs it. 
Sparks also tells him, in this country, the majority is always white. That's the rule. And we can go back to that later, because it's a slightly different point. So the point of departure, key. Mm -hmm. And the point of departure is a community. Uh, and Sparks tells him, the best thing that happened to us is that we were, lost, we were left alone. You know, the pilgrims arrived, and they were left alone. They just had to figure it out. Um, the, the, and, and, and that's how we began. So, so don't you think that's a really critical conversation? And so this is the, a critical conversation from which he's thinking about associations, he's thinking about majorities, he's also thinking about, as you trace throughout his entire life, the centralization versus localism, decentralization arguments. So he stayed with localism. Yeah. But... And he absorbs this completely. But what is most remarkable is that really he observes very little, very little of the life of associations, if you, if you read those notes now. He, he travels, that's why I said this is not a travelogue. Right. Tocqueville travels all through uh, the, uh, upstate New York, along the Erie Canal. He doesn't see the Second Great Awakening. Mm -mm. He, he doesn't see the preachers uh, creating he, he, new... He goes right through the burned-over district. Right, he, doesn't, he doesn't see Charles Finney. He doesn't see Brigham Young and he, the rise of the church of the Latter-day Saints. He, he, he misses all this. He would have been fascinated by that. He them. would have been. He misses it. But he, he, he can't see everything, I guess. No, that's right. He misses it. Uh, he, he sees uh, the first uh, political conventions. Yeah. So he has this idea that people communicate from outside of the state mm -hmm. to uh, circulate ideas. But as he's writing Democracy in America, the French state, the government, passes a law to prevent associations greater than 20 people to outlaw them for fear of being challenged. <laughs> and uh, and Tocqueville sees that and, and all of a sudden he puts the two and two together and he writes this incredible theory of associations. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, labels it American, which it is. <laughs> But it comes from, but, but, but you know, it's a different thought process. But the catalyst, the spark, came from the, what he was experiencing in France, in France as he was writing the book. As he was writing the book and, and resisting this, this uh, 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 political, uh, uh, how should I say, act of, of uh, uh, suppressing freedoms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked about Jared Sparks. Um, what are some of the other informants? I mean, his informants are fascinating. It's fascinating how he finds them. Sam Houston, Sam Houston of all people, shows up riding a white horse, I think, yes. by a steamboat in the Mississippi. But there are others, uh, less known now, but it's amazing that he met him, I think, twice, is Joel Poinsett. Um, yeah, no, 
George Point said this totally unknown from the American I'm, population. I have a, a, a friend who's been on the podcast is, is right, going to write a new biography about him, which is important. I think we only know him at Christmas time when we go by <laughs> poinsettias. And no one knows the connection. <laughs> but that's, that's, he was the ambassador to Mexico and supposedly introduced the, the flower, the flower to, to America. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody knows the connection, but everybody's buying poinsettias. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, uh, but we'll get back to George points yeah. uh, in a second. Uh, I think the 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 first uh, major. I mean, Tovils took notes from conversation with about two hundred Americans, That's right. which is really fascinating. Many of them very detailed. Yeah. Just he was leaving the conversation, he would record it in in notebooks. And with and he had a, does he always have? Is he always carrying notes? He carried around? those notebooks. He had a and wonderful I, memory. I, I, I always wanted to know this. Is he? Are they like loose things of paper? Or are they actually little notebooks that he's brought? They are from notebooks. Friend? They are notebooks. And he just and he carries them. He writes with a pencil or what's well, he? Write, write, he, he writes them with the pencil, and he and he he has some that are alphabetical notebooks and some that are chronological notebooks. Uh. And they are very well kept. At some point, he writes to his mother, he said, I have incredible notes. I'm the only one who can make sense of them. <laughs> and if I ever write something decent about America, it's all in there. Mm-hmm. And he's also writing, you, you say, he's writing these long letters home. And he writes these long letters and, home, and, and he gets his friends and his families. Please keep them, keep them. Because they're like journals. Of they're journals. journals. Yeah. So, so he does all that. But... First, when he gets to New York early in his travels, well, let me put it this way. He arrives in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. He had read Fenimore Cooper uh, <laughs> uh, 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 on American manners, uh, notions of the Americans, which is, I think, a book Lafayette told Cooper to write. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he, he expected uh, uh, customs inspectors not to go over his trunks or look into them or open them. They would go easy. But he certainly didn't anticipate that he would have to swear on the Bible that he had nothing to declare. So the first minute he disembarks in Newport Island, he's being asked to swear something on the Bible. He had no clue that would happen. Then he gets into Newport, he rides in on the main street, and the first thing he sees is five banks on the main street of this little town. And here he has it, he said, well, God and money. <laughs> <laughs> this is... He's not this, the first or last Frenchman to say the same thing. <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> and... And and uh, and the next day or twenty four hours later, he takes a steamboat uh, uh, to New York, and says, "Oh my God, the sense of distance and the speed at which we travel." Mm-hmm. So you know, those first impressions was lasted for, for, for uh, a long time. But in New York City, he talked mostly about very upper class people, yeah. very wealthy New Yorkers, and people who had been in the Federalist Party for a, a while. Yeah. I mean, even they were still Federalists, even though there was no Federalist yeah. Party. Yeah. But 
But at the same time, he visits prisons mm -hmm. systematically, and he has so he has both ends mm -hmm. of society. Um, he, he he has a really important encounter in Albany with the politicians, democratic politicians, the Van Buren machine, who run the Albany Regency, doesn't really understand it very well, doesn't really understand, doesn't really understand New York City government very well either. He was still getting his feet wet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and basically went to upstate New York really to see uh, uh, the majestic landscape mm -hmm. and looking for the frontier. Yeah. This is actually where you see the first Native Americans and they happen to be drunk and uh, in very poor health conditions. And he says, well, where did Mr. Chateaubriand invent Athera? Uh, you know, he's completely disoriented by this. Uh, and as we just said, he misses the Second Great Awakening and also misses the great industrialization of the Great Awakening. But, but, to go back to the informant, yeah. he meets a New York State politician, yes. know, John Spencer, John, John C. Spencer, yeah. uh, in Canandaigua, New York, not far from the urban prison he was going to visit. And that was his, f and, and Spencer gave, gives him a crash course in constitutional principle. Yeah. And Tuvion, who is super smart, said, I wish I'd known this before. <laughs> you know? Uh, and this opens up a whole new vista yeah. of, uh, 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 of really how this country came to be. So John Spencer was a really significant uh, um, informant. And also Spencer told him to appreciate the value of a bicameral chamber, two mm -hmm. chambers. And, and basic constitutional principle that will stay with Tocqueville for the rest of his life, as he will play a major role as a legislator later on in France. Um, so that's the second key, key informant. Uh, he has some major informants through the Great Lakes and, 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 and Michigan forest, uh, and we can go back to that if you want to. But I think the next really major informant would be Jared Sparks. Mm -hmm. Although he had a fantastic conversation with John Quincy Adams when he was in Boston. Uh, but Jared Sparks really went into depth mm -hmm. about, about America's history and, 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 and uh, religion and, and the New England town and all, and all of it. Um, I think that uh, he had some major conversations in Philadelphia mostly about law and and uh, he was trained remember in uh, uh, Roman law and in codification and that no real idea of the British common law mm -hmm. and but he studied it in America in order to understand the Americans uh, legal principle um, as he moved further west after looking, experiencing, watching the f one of the first instances of the Trail of Tears mm -hmm. with Choctaw Indians crossing the Mississippi. It's a very powerful moment in very the book. So, powerful. so powerfully written. Yeah. He meets 
by chance mm -hmm. on the steamboat, Sam Houston. And nobody could have given him a better sense of Indian life than Sam Houston, who lived within it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, 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 although uh, Houston did not uh, condemn the Jacksonian policy, uh, but, he, but he gave Tocqueville a very positive view of Native Americans as being highly intelligent and adaptable, as opposed to practically all of the other informants mm -hmm. uh, that Tocqueville met, kind of basically justifying mm -hmm. the confiscation of the land and, and the forced deportation on the basis of the fact that it was a doomed race that would not assimilate. And Tocqueville really drank it. He thought that, yes. At last he's... he's at last he's sort of seen at least one, one of them, one, mm -hmm. one white American who who had the popular yeah. understanding. And uh, this has always been one of the many criticisms of things Tocqueville didn't see is the South. I know uh, historians of the American South are always saying he spent all his time in the North, he spent all his time in New England. Uh, he did, his trip through the South was very quick. He was, uh, as it were, he was, <laughs> I mean, at what point was he summoned back? Well, I forget, but he was, the entire time they go through the South, uh, they're traveling very quickly. Yeah, he, he was he was summoned back, and that is the as I said earlier, it it was a, a uh, an assignment uh, from the French uh, uh, Ministry of Justice. Yes. Okay, uh, and uh, um, he was on leave from the courthouse, and we don't know who made the decision and why they were recalled, because there was no reason given, but they did receive the order to, okay, you've had enough time out, now come back. Mm -hmm. And they were in Philadelphia when they got this, they hadn't gone west, and they said, to, no, 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 we want to try to stay as long as we can. Nonetheless, they had to cut short the south, but they yeah. went through. Yeah, they did go through. And um, I should say, unfortunately they did, because they did, he did go to New Orleans, yeah. And what's always interesting to me, uh, you, you said earlier how Tocqueville is a, is a comparative thinker, just it's part of his soul. Going, Being able to go to Quebec, going out to French Canada, and then going to New Orleans gives him points of comparison within North America with which to see everything else that he's been seeing. Well, between the Great Lakes and New England, Tocqueville spent a few days in Quebec. He liked it. He liked the Quebecois. He liked it, being able to speak Norman. He could hear Norman French. He could hear preserved. Norman French. He said, the old, he, said, he said, the old France is here, the new France is home. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but, but he, he was unimpressed. Yeah. He was largely unimpressed it, it, uh, because he felt like uh, they were a conquered people yeah. and had little hope for, for, their, uh, for achieving, for living what Tocqueville thought liberty should be, mm -hmm. uh, achieving their potential. Uh, he was assured time and again in Louisiana that no, the French in Louisiana, many of them came from the West Indies, where, where, from the Caribbean, where, where uh, uh, um, uh, free and enterprising and all of this. Nonetheless, I think to in Louisiana, he went there too quickly, 
really missed a big opportunity to uh, understand uh, the, the, the great inner conflict or conflict within Louisiana being two legal systems mm-hmm. um, and why the Creoles were really scared that uh, American judges in civil courts would basically uh, not recognize their uh, property titles, mm-hmm. um, that they would lose out in court time and again because they had acquired much of their wealth with contracts written in, in French civil law mm-hmm. and not in, in uh, and not, not recognized in American courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like Edward Livingston, who was Jackson's Secretary of State and was also a major informant for Tocqueville, had a career in Louisiana, worked extensively on the penal system, but as a lawyer in Louisiana, spent his whole time defending uh, Creoles mm-hmm. uh, for, for this for this very reason. Tocqueville went through Louisiana too quickly mm-hmm. uh, to see this. To know the questions to ask Livingston, he doesn't... He, to, to, yeah. so, so he said, but he did understand uh, the significance of um, hierarchical race relations in Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, so enough of it to, even though he didn't visit slave markets, to, but, to, to both, I mean, Beaumont, of course, more famously, but also, as you show, Tocqueville is a thoroughgoing abolitionist by the time he's done his trip in. Tocqueville is a thoroughgoing abolitionist uh, in, his, uh, uh, in his career. He, f- he fights his whole life for the abolition of uh, slavery in the French colonies. Of course, it does, this had happened during the French Revolution, but Napoleon reinstituted uh, the It lasted much longer than I real. I I'd forgotten how long it lasted. You know, into what eighteen forties. Eighteen forty eight. It was finally uh, abolished. So after the you know the British had done it long before. Yeah. So, but Tocqueville fought hard for it. Um, uh, his his text, Jared Sparks, published them in America. Uh, in, uh, uh, so he was recognized as an abolitionist and also he made it very clear uh, in democracy in America that there were no two way out either there would be complete assimilation or a race war mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the south so he, he predicted the civil war um, even though it didn't happen the way he predicted it uh, but he did say in democracy in America if the sectional conflict between North and South, between industry and 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 and, and uh, plantation and the, plant, the industrialists and the planters, uh, combined with with the race conflict, this country is gone. Union Union will collapse, and democracy will die. And but he, in democracy in America, he predicted the race war, which and it what really happened was the sectional war. But nonetheless, it was really, uh, I think, a testament to Tocqueville's very clear vision. And Charles Sumner, Tocqueville's friend, a great abolitionist, uh, uh, recognized Tocqueville as, as, a, as, as a visionary mm-hmm. in that sense. So it's, it's a very uh, uh, important point, yeah. The, um, we need to get uh, Tocqueville, we need to wrap up this, this part of our conversation and get Tocqueville back to France 
Um, so he, uh, they make their way back to, to New York. Um, they have an unsatisfactory meeting with Andrew Jackson, uh, who is not an informant. <laughs> Andrew Jackson is not a major Tocqueville informant. He returns to France. They write their report on prisons. Uh, that's the first thing they do. Um, and then he locks himself up in an attic and begins to work on the big book. Is that? How? Well, okay. I, I wouldn't use the word unsatisfactory in the sense that they, they, they had a disappointing, a disappointing meeting, disappointing yeah. meeting with, with Jackson. Jackson, uh, um, they saw Jackson, the, the French uh, minister in Washington, arranged for it. Uh, they had a brief conversation with him, uh, and not, not much came of it, and they were disappointed because they had spent so much time thinking about it. They, they had a much more important discussion about Jackson and democracy with John Quincy Adams than with Jackson. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, That's a somewhat biased source, but yeah. a somewhat biased source, yeah, 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 yeah of course. Um, uh, but the... the the yeah, so he came back, and Tocqueville was prone to depression. Yeah, he, he so he had a moment, low moment, but but he he always emerged from them, and uh, and he and his friend Beaumont wrote the prison report. They had trunks of notes on prison. It's mostly Beaumont who wrote the report. Tocqueville mostly wrote the notes and approved of the manuscript, and of course uh, distressed it with him. It's mostly Beaumont, and 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 uh, and it was uh, sort of a descriptive book. Uh, it doesn't have the Tocqueville's brilliance. Tocqueville will write the, the preface to the second edition, where you really sense mm-hmm. his uh, uh, that he he's behind it, but book itself. But then, so that's the first thing that was done. They needed to do a report, okay. Um, but then, yes, he said, uh, I have to uh, uh, lock myself up. And he, he, he locked himself up in his parents' attic and he started uh, going through his, uh, through his notes. Uh, he, he interrupted uh, it for a brief uh, trip to England first in his life, uh, because he wanted to sort of see aristocratic England. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it was, uh, the trip was prompted by the reform movement in England and the fact that, they, well, if I want to see old England still run by aristocrats, I better go now, <laughs> like uh, the last performance of a beautiful play. <laughs> That's the word he used. <laughs> and uh, uh, so that was basically the only, only interruption. Um, so how long did it take him? I mean, this is a famously, this is a very concentrated period of work. It is a very concentrated period of work. It's very inspired. He used a lot of his travel notes in this, in this first volume, and uh, either from his notebooks or from the letters home. Um, and it took him uh, basically from April 32 to January 35. Or mm-hmm. December thirty-four book uh, was very quickly printed, five hundred copies as you put it out, and uh, uh, he was walking a fine line all the way through. That is to say, uh, he used to read his draft to his uh, uh, brother Edward, one of his two brothers, uh, with whom he was 
close to, to his father, to his childhood friend, Tergolet, to Beaumont. Uh, he read this draft out loud. Uh, his uh, uh, critics, interlocutors, basically were trying to tell him, if you want to, to convince uh, your readers, most, most of whom will be, you know, conservatives, uh, against democracy, mm -hmm. you have to uh, lead them to consider your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And, and Tofield making a, into a first suspension for doubt himself, we discussed it, passion for complexity, always seeing two different sides of the same issue. When you read Tocqueville uh, and his book, this book, you, Tocqueville always, almost systematically, argues this case and then argues the opposite case mm -hmm. and then tilt the balance only slightly towards his case. And it's only that kind of a cumulative reading mm -hmm. of his book where you see how consistent he is. He has the, he, next to Thomas Aquinas, is probably the best person at making other people's arguments better than they can. Probably so. Uh, and I, and, and uh, so as a result of it, and uh, we recognize it, a lot of people assign to me ideas that are not mine because it's convenient for them, mm -hmm. because they extract whatever I say. But, um, and and uh, having... Uh, not only read Tocqueville extremely closely, but taught Tocqueville uh, for many years to cohorts and cohorts of undergraduates. Uh, I've been a history teacher for only 43 or 44 years. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can tell you that um, this is always, uh, uh, it's a case where I encourage people to read Tocqueville's Democracy in America. I encourage people uh, forgive me for a bit of advertising, but to read uh, my friend Arthur Goldhammer's translation because it is an act of magic as a translation. It's a superb translation. Uh, the Library of America translation. Uh, if um, uh, y you can extract from it many things that Tovey didn't think, but you can also read, read it closely with great pleasure. And then you see the cumulative effect of his reasoning. And, one question, how did he develop his style? And this is very difficult to explain. We're talking in English. Uh, you go back and forth. But how would we describe his French style to people who don't read French? What makes it distinctive? Because am I correct that he is a distinctive stylist? Well, he is a very good stylist. And the fact that and he was obsessed with rewriting his text precisely because he wanted to find the right balance between what he thought and what the other people thought and how he would make his case. So he was sometimes rewriting the same sentence 20 times mm -hmm. uh, until he got just the, the mm -hmm. right balance. But we talked about Chateaubriand, who was a great romantic writer. I told you of Chateaubriand that Chateaubriand knew how to embellish <laughs> uh, the French uh, sort of classical writing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and Tocqueville knew to do this too, and did it in a few texts, like a wonderful description of two weeks in the Michigan forest, called mm -hmm. Two Weeks in the Wilderness. Right. Uh, that was never published in his lifetime. Um, 
Uh, but for democracy in America, and for his other books as well, he chose a very classical French style. Kergelet says to him, read Montaigne, read Pascal, read... Uh, read Pascal, read Montesquieu. Montesquieu, read yeah. Read Rousseau. Yeah. And, and uh, those are the, your, your masters. And, and Tocqueville's uh, childhood tutor was a priest, uh, Abbé Le Sueur, they called him Bébé for Abbé, uh, also told him, be sure to read the great Catholic preachers, mm-hmm. Bossuet, Bordalou, the great 17th century writers. And Tocqueville did. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, yes, he, he, he has a beautiful French... Uh, style, and it's interesting because uh, for a long time, um, uh, Tocqueville was not considered to be a literary classic, but I think he is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So let's conclude where uh, I began. Um, Five hundred copies are printed; they sell quickly, <laughs> um, and he wakes up, as it were, to find himself after being in this attic uh, for two years, almost two years find himself now he's a literary lion. He's a literary lion. He never got a penny from his American editions. All, all stolen. Uh, and the American publisher uh, uh, pirated the uh, British translation. At the time, Americans were not respecting copyrights laws, international copyrights laws. This book must have sold millions and millions. Of course, <laughs> it has been now in public domain for a long time. Yeah. But in his life, Tocqueville never got a penny from America. <laughs> for America. But it did well in France. It did well in France. And then in England, too. It did well in England as well, yeah. Um, so we will pick up, because that leaves us at the end of the publication of Volume 1. That's right. And how many years is it till Volume 2 is that's just, Five years. That's very significant. It's a significant silence, as Professor Strauss might say. But well, yes, except that, uh, of course, Tocqueville kept working on it. Uh, went to uh, uh, England uh, for a completely different, uh, in-depth visit of England and Ireland. And one topic that was basically excluded, two topics were basically excluded from Volume One: poverty. Uh, he uh, and industrialization are big features of volume two, yeah. especially industrialization and the fear of an coming of industrialized aristocracy. And he call all comes out of England, uh, and and uh, and that's very important to to realize. Even though the second volume is still also called Democracy in America, it's much more a, a, a general theory of democracy. Yeah. Than the volume of the market. So. Well, it's, I guess, that, as you said, as you say in the bio, that's another thing that he missed was industrialization as he, he, he went through to England without necessarily seeing this. But yeah. we'll, get to, we'll get to volume two and we'll get to Tocqueville, the politician, the statesman, and the sort of um, his self imposed internal exile. And, the, and his, his great, immensely significant book on the French Revolution. In our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, 
Wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.